the last two weeks, we've been talking about the vision of Christ City Church. It's this whole series we're calling Vision and, and Mission, um, pretty direct and on the nose. And the first two weeks is around the vision. We talked about that Christ City Church seeks to be a place to belong. We also seek to be a place to know God. And that this reminds us, this vision, a place to belong and a place to know God, this reminds us of why we exist. It, it's the why to everything we do. It's the direction of where we're headed. Um, it's the thing we filter everything through and ask ourselves, is it worth it? Because this is our vision, right? And so we need a vision that helps bring the direction of what we're about. And so if you've missed out on that and you want to hear more, you can, you can go online and listen to those because it's really important that we hammer that home. Now, today, though, it's not just a direction that we're going. We also need a path to get there, a path to get there. And that's what mission does. Whenever you have a mission, whenever you have a vision and a mission, it tells you where you're going, and it also tells you how you're going to get there. And the, the mission we have as a church is pretty simple. Becoming followers of Jesus who recover their lives, reimagine their purpose, and refresh their world. Becoming followers of Jesus who recover their lives, reimagine their purpose, and refresh their world. And this morning, we want to focus on that first part of being followers of Jesus or becoming followers of Jesus who recover their lives. But I think the first thing we have to just kind of like point to and, and talk about is this word becoming. Like, that's a purposeful word. It's, it's not a um, making disciples of Jesus. It's not uh, we became disciples of Jesus. It's this word that constantly has motion to it. We are becoming followers of Jesus. I want to just point out a, a quote I came across from, from C.S. Lewis. I, I, think, I think it'll help kind of flesh this out. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with self, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is the joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. We are constantly either moving towards becoming more heavenly creatures or more hellish creatures. We have to recognize that. And sometimes we have to pause in our journey and go, where am I right now? What is happening in my life? What kind of decisions am I making that are either adding up to something for me to become more like the heavenly creature I'm designed to be or the hellish creature I could evolve, I could evolve into? And I believe that the first step, and we believe the first step in this journey of becoming a more heavenly creature, the first place we have to start is to get our lives back, to get our lives back. Now, I know that sounds weird, so let me kind of explain what I mean by that, and I'll start with kind of some of my own story. I mentioned last week um, a place I came to in, in my life several years ago where I just wanted to kind of press the nuke button. You know what I mean when I say that? 
like this is not worth it anymore. And I don't mean like I wanted to take my life. I meant I wanted to get as far away from my life as possible. I wanted to do away with anything and everything that my life had become, including God. And, uh, and so I went away to what my, my friends would notoriously call pastor prison, yeah, which basically meant I just spent a lot of time with a bunch of therapists for a long time. And we just talked a lot about all the ways that I want to get away from life. And, um, and I found there was a particular verse I kept turning over in my head over and, and over again. It, it came from, um, comes from Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. We'll put it on the screen. Um, and there's actually two parts that I really love. I'll read it. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Like there's this action of coming, of becoming. And I love how the message says it. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Man, I just remember reading that thinking, I just want it. Like, whatever it takes, that's what I want. I want a real rest. And what I realized is I just wanted to go home. You know what I mean when I say that? Like, E.T. wants to go home. You want to go home. We all just want to go home. And I don't necessarily mean home to the place where you experience all the pain and hurt. I mean the place you know that you're meant to go. Like, the place where you can really belong and know God, the place where you can really find a real rest. Um, and, and so when I was thinking through this, this, this sermon, really there's no other passage I think that articulates that more clearly than this passage, this parable of the prodigal son. And you've probably heard it talked about many times, but I think it's important that we establish at our base our mission of, where we're, of how we're gonna get there. This path is really that this passage illuminates that for us, and that it doesn't give us a pill to take. I want you to hear me say that this morning. What I'm about to talk about here will not give you a pill, but it will give you a path. Like, you know this, like, we unconsciously come here to church on Sundays wanting a pill. Like, pastor, give me a pill. Worship leader, give me a pill. Give me something I get to take this week that takes away all the hurt and all the pain and all the questions. And the reason why so many of you are so frustrated with us so often is because we will not give you a pill. I've heard you. You've talked to me, or I've heard you talk to other people about me about this, all right? That we do not give you enough pills here, all right? Um, actually, if you're listening, we give no pills, because that could sound really weird. But like, cultish. We just give paths. And this path, I think, is really articulated well with a prodigal. And, and here's this path. Here's how I want to break it down. The way back is the way down. The way back the place you want to get to is the way down. So let's just talk about this. Let's first talk about, though, the way down. Look at verse 11 and 12. There was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, Jesus starts the story right in the middle of, like, this family. Sons are grown. We have no clue if there's a mother or not. We just know that there's a son, two sons, and a father. And the younger son asked something so audacious, so scandalous, um, he actually even asked it, he makes a statement. He goes, give me my share of the estate. And if you don't know, the only way a father could give that is if he liquidated what he had. Like they, don't, they didn't have banks, right? Where they had like blocks of gold that you go to your local like Middle Eastern bank and like, hey, you know, give me this right here. That, that wasn't the case. Um, it was all tied up in land, cattle, sheep. 
which means the father had to go ahead and sell away his life for his son to get his share of the estate. He also was saying basically to his father, I want you dead. I wish you were dead. Because that's the only way you could get your money is if the father passed. So he's saying to his father up front, I want you dead. So this means it's a really healthy, happy family from the get-go, right? Like that's what we see up front. It's all going just great. And then it says next, though, like you would think if somebody came to you and said, hey, I want you dead, give me your money, like I don't think your response would be like, well, that makes sense, and we'll do that. No, like if, if that's one of your children, you'd be like, just go back to your room, and you don't want to do this today because, like, I got moves, right? No, you, would, you, you, would, you wouldn't just give it to him, but the father says here, look, it says, um, so he divided his property between them. The father starts dealing with the pain and living in the hurt and the sadness. And then it picks up in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off to a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now let's just camp here for a second. He had to get away from something. Very clear, the son was trying to get away from something. And here's the difference. He wasn't trying to go step into something. He was trying to get away from something. And I think the difference between those two ideas and those two statements, like, is a million miles away from each other and also lets you know where you are. So here's the question. Are you trying to get away from something in life or are you trying to step into something in life? Like, even, for example, in marriage, so many times we get married because we're lonely. We want to get away from the loneliness not because we want to step into something. We want to have children to get away from the sense that I don't have enough worth in life. So if I have children and raise them, then I'll have more value. Uh, it could be that I want to get away from my family of origin. And so you just move to wherever it may be to like get away from that, not because you want to step into things. And you can see how blurry the lines are because like some days you feel like you're stepping into things, other days you're trying to get away from it. But here we find this son, he's not just saying, I want to go blow up my life. He's not saying that. He's not saying, I want to just lose myself in reckless living. He's obviously living this way to get away from something. So the, here's the question. Are you trying to get away from something today? And you'll know by the way you're living. That's how you'll know. You can't outthink that part. Like, do you keep trying to check out and get away with things? And I'm gonna give us a list here in a second, the ways you can. Or are you actually trying to step into things? And here's what's interesting, this, this phrase, wild living, we're gonna put on the screen, just really interesting words here. Um, the, the first word that's really important to see is, is this word, asatos zeo. It means riotous living, riotously. He is living like, he is living wildly. He is living without limits. He is trying to lose his mind and get away from his life. And what's really interesting with this word, asatoseo, the, the root of it is another word, asatiazeo, which means an abandoned life. An abandoned life. See, here's what this is telling us. You can live in such a way, so riotously, so recklessly, so trying to get away from things that eventually you will end up with an abandoned life. Can you relate to that? 
Can you relate to an abandoned life? Can you relate to the deep loneliness that you have of constantly maybe giving yourself over to something time and time again, not because it's gonna give you something, but because it's gonna get you away from something? And this is the heart of addiction. See, the heart of addiction is not being able to live life on life's terms. The heart of addiction isn't that you're some kind of horrible sinner and how dare you do those things and that's just so despicable and God looks down on you. No, the heart of addiction is simply, I can't deal with this anymore, so I'm gonna do whatever I can to get away from it over and over and over again, and then your brain gets hooked. It's pretty simple and yet incredibly difficult to find yourself stepping out of. And a lot of us would say, oh, that's not me. But here's the thing. Here's what riotous living leads to. See, we're trying to get away. When we're living riotously or living this abandoned life, what we're actually trying to do is take power back because we felt like something was taken from us when we were vulnerable. I, again, that probably sounds like some kind of therapy session for you. But like because something was taken from you when you were in a vulnerable state and you're like, you make a deal with yourself, that won't happen again. So now you try to move your life towards never being needy again. Because when you were needy, guess what happened? Nobody came and you were taken advantage of. Something became so irre irreplaceably, irrecoverably broken. It's all embedded in this passage. It's so interesting, and this is what comes with addiction. Henry Nowen in your bulletin says it this way. Addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates society. Our addiction makes us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment. Accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. These addictions create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy what our deepest needs. As long as we live within the world's delusions, our addictions condemn us to futile quests in the distant country, leaving us to face an endless series of disillusionments while our sense of self remains unfulfilled. In these days of increasing addictions, we have wandered far away from the Father's home. The addicted life can aptly be designated as a life lived in a distant country. It's from there, this is important, it's from there, though, that our cry for deliverance rises up. What's the distant country you find yourself living in? Like, what is it? Not just put together a, a list on the fly. Um, and we're just gonna see, like, are these things part of your distant country trying to get away? First we see that maybe it's substances. That's the easy one, right? Like substances. And, and we kind of look at people and go, ah, oh, yeah, that's a real addict. Look at them. Look at them trying to get away from their life with substances, with, with drinking. It could be maybe with food. Um, uh, it could be with narcotics in whatever ways. And we kind of go, those are all addicts, but let's just see what else happens on this list. Next, we have sex and love. And I put that specifically there because it could be that it's lust. It's, it's that you just want to have sex, but a lot of times it's that you just want to be loved. You get so addicted to being loved because you didn't get it maybe, I don't know. But the reality is you keep living in those ways. You have to be loved. And then we move on. 
we find that it's money and things. It's like, how much money can I get? Or, listen, I've heard some of you talk, and I know that you talk about my shoes. I get that. And you're like, here's a pastor wearing shoes. I know who you are, right? I know what's happening here, all right? Moving on the list, all right. <laughs> don't judge me, or I'll judge you. All right, so work could be it. Like, you get so consumed with work, you find an identity in how long you work. Like, some of us in this room go, if I work 60 or 70 hours, like, I am gonna be okay. Like, you don't know what to do with yourself in a 40-hour week. You get the shakes. You don't know what to do with something called boundaries because you just think you have to always pour yourself out because then you'll get more praise back. You get addicted to it. We find maybe it's you're addicted to being needed, needed, right? That you become so codependent with other people. Like, I just need you to need me. This is like what 99% of marriages end up being, right? I need you to need me, so I'm gonna do whatever it is I need to do for you not to leave me. Or I'm gonna do whatever I have to do for you to always need me more. It becomes this crazy endless cycle. It's even how we build friendships and relationships. Then we find, I just need to be liked. I need to be so likable. I need everybody just to kind of be on the same team and high five and we're all good. And everybody's like, no, no, that's not how this works. But you want to be so liked. And so therefore, you like abandon yourself and ever talking about your own needs and being real and just in turn going, oh, it'll all be fine and gloss right over it. It's also called Enneagram 7s, right? Am I right? Am I right? All right, I'm joking. Okay. Control, Enneagram 8s. All right, control. <laughs> like, some of us just go, I need to make all this work out on my terms. And so you've curated a whole world. It's your family. It's your children. And they are like, like saluting to you. Listen, the other day, uh, Charlotte said to me, yes, sir. She did that. She said, yes, sir. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, we have a problem. No, and I, who taught you that? And she just kind of walked away saying, yes, sir. And I'm like, it's not okay for a four-year-old to say to her father, yes, sir. It comes so controlling, right? You get addicted to it, though, because things work out on your terms. But as soon as something doesn't, what do we go to next? Rage. Because as soon as something doesn't work out on your terms, oh, here's the Christian word we put to it. Anger. I just get angry sometimes. No, you don't. You freak out and everybody's scared of you, but you actually don't know that because no one will talk to you about your rage, but you're also super lonely. And the reason why you're lonely is because you rage. People don't know what to do with you. The rage becomes so much because you can't control things. And then eventually we get to shame. Some of us in here, we also call shame humility. Like, I'm just going to talk about myself in really low ways. It's also called self-deprecation. It's also called not living in your Imago day, and it's not biblical. You shame yourself so much, so whenever you do something wrong or bad or sinful, like, you compound the shame with maybe, like, eating bad, and you compound that with checking out or whatever it may be, and it becomes a shame cycle, and it's an addiction. And then lastly, but not least, we find religion. Did you know that God can become an addiction? Like, not in a good way. Not like what Carmen said in the 90s, addicted to Jesus, all right? Like, he was way off theologically. Like, it's, you become so addicted to God and so addicted to religion, 
and making sure you have every, all your T's crossed and I's dotted, and your God is so unrelatable. It's just a taskmaster to keep you in line. It's something you've created, and you become addicted to it. And so you find that you don't know what to do with grace and love, much less a journey back home to get your life back. Now, all these things here, these lists that we just, we just put up, this list we just put up, like, these are ways we try to check out. These are ways we get away from our neediness of not having to reach out, not having to ask for help. We want to somehow hold the power in it, which means 99% of the world is somehow in some way addicted. No one gets out of this. If you're sitting here and you happen to be the 1%, amazing, keep it up. You're probably lying to yourself, but keep it up. All of us deal with addiction in some way or another. All of us deal with wanting to get away from neediness and not having to be truly vulnerable. And this parable points that out. We want to get as far away from home as possible. But then you find yourself far from home, and then we get to verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And then down to verse 16, and no one gave him anything. His riotous living led, led to this abrogated, abandoned life. And he finally gets to the place of need. And friends, this is where the miracle starts to happen. If you can just get to where you recognize need is, here's how you get on the path back home. You recognize need. You recognize you can't fix it. And then we find in verse 17, I love this. When he came to his senses. In the ESV, it says, but when he came to himself. Okay, you see that? It was at the bottom, he finally could start making his way back. It was at him realizing he couldn't fix his life or anything about it, that he finally could find hope again. And this is where I think our brothers and sisters in the recovery 12-step movement like have a way head start on us as a church. Because we look at that and we go, oh, look at those people who keep having all those sins, doing all those wrong things, and how bad is that? And then you're going, but like, they're way happier than you. And nicer. And more at peace. Yeah, but yeah, but that's false. It'll fade at some point in time. Well, it hasn't. So what do you do now? What do you do with your faith when you're always angry and always raging and always having to be in control and never know what to do with neediness, never asking for help? What do you do with that? And then you look at another person who's like, I'm at peace. Like it's called serenity now, right? Serenity now, serenity now. Like it's, it's, it's like, I'm good. I think at some point in time, we have to like not ask, what do you believe? But instead ask, how's that working for you? We get so caught up in always saying, well, what do you believe and how do you believe it? Okay, let me kind of mm, put my brain with yours and let's just kind of compare notes. Here's what I'm more interested in. I'm less interested in what you believe. I'm more interested in how that's working for you. If it's working for you, now let's have the conversation. Let's see what's happening. And there's something happening in those movements that we can look at and go, man, look at the life there. It's because people have come to their senses. They just happen to like have a diction that took them there a lot faster than yours. But here's the thing that should be scary for us. 
What if you don't have those addictions at the top of the list? What if yours are near the bottom? See, the thing is, you could find yourself in your 40s, 50s, or 60s one day, wake up with an abandoned life. And you know what I mean when I say that. It's like when you wake up and you go, something is really, really off, and I'm really, really lonely, and I don't know how to get back home. An abandoned life, a life of addiction. And then it says in verse 20, he got up and went to his father. Now, here's what I want you to understand, because there's a lot of conversations he has with himself afterwards, like, my father's servants eat better than me, they're hired hands, I'll go back, I'll say to him, I'm not worthy to be your son. He goes through what? The shame cycle, doesn't he? Like, he just starts shaming himself. You ever do this? Like, um, you make fun of yourself out loud before others can because you assume others are going to? That's a real one, isn't it? Like, I'm going to, like, make fun of myself and have a lot of self-deprecation before others can. That's a lot more acceptable than the person who makes fun of someone else before they can make fun of them. Like, that's, that's eighth grade stuff. We've moved on to adult stuff when we actually have self-deprecation, which is not biblical, which is not in line with what does it mean to, like, get your life back. But here's what I want you to realize. The journey home is never perfect. The journey home is never a straight line. Listen, I said this to someone earlier today. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, right? You've heard that. He draws straight line with crooked sticks. You just have to be willing to accept you're a crooked stick. And like your straight line may take longer than others. And you may have some stops along the way. And you may want to say like, I don't deserve this. Talk yourself out of it. But here's what could happen in that process if we're not careful. We can find ourselves talking ourselves out of our neediness. He's almost trying to talk himself out of his neediness. I'm gonna go back and be so self-deprecating so that like maybe somehow, some way, I can show I'm not fully needy. It's not a perfect journey home. And that's important that we see that and understand because there's a narrative in his head that says his self-worth is not that high. Surely the Father will not love me and want me. Now, I have no clue where some of you are on this way home. None. I have no clue if you relate to the things I've said so far. But if you find that your life is regularly, like, you're just lonely and you're angry, like, you're, you're lonely because even when you're a crowd of people, people who you consider friends, you go, I can't relate to these people. Like, you ever find yourself in those moments where you're in a crowd of people and you feel like you're just a million miles away? Like, no one really knows you. You don't know how to even really talk about the neediness in your life. And then you take that and compound it, extrapolate it, and it becomes even that much worse with God. Like, real talk for a second. And if, if, if this is not you, just, just be quiet, okay? But listen, those in this room how long has it been since you've actually sensed God's presence in your life? Like, how long has it actually been since you actually sensed that he was near, he loves you, and he wants to be with you? Now, just pause for a second and ask yourself that. And if you can admit that honestly, that it's been that long, 
that's where need starts. It's simply admitting how lonely and how far away I feel. And then asking yourself the question, could I start the journey home today? My life feels so abandoned. I feel so distant. Could I start the journey home today? It says at the end of verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So I actually have a problem with this verse. As much as you would think that this is like, great, now we get to the part where the father is there. I actually have a real problem with this verse. Now I also have gratitude. I have a problem with this verse. You see, the other two parables in this chapter are about um, a shepherd who loses a sheep, and what does he do? He goes after the sheep. We have a woman who loses a coin. What does she do? She goes and searches for the coin. And what do we have in this chapter? We have a father who doesn't go looking for his son, nor the older son goes looking for the younger son. Now, we can kind of like, oh, well, maybe because he didn't have money, Robin, because he sold everything. Fine. Let me tell you something. If I lost my child and my child, listen, there are movies and stories written unconsciously about how if a child goes away, guess what? A parent goes after. You can't tell me that if your child left today, you wouldn't try to go after them. Now, I get it, but what if they try to go out time and time again? You got to let them go figure out their way home? Fine. I'm just telling you what bothers me about the parable. You could be okay with it however you want to look at it. What bothers me about the parable is the father doesn't go after him. And the son has to find his way back home. Now, I think there's two parts to it. One, I think that it's trying to show us that God is like better than human fathers. I think God is trying to show us he's better than human fathers. And I think he's also in that saying that like people are doing the best they know how. Listen, wherever you are right now, no one's probably coming. Not what you want to hear at church, I know. But no one's probably coming wherever you are. You're going to have to come to a place where like you hit your bottom. But I think here's the other part to it. I think like God is the wallpaper in the room that you don't realize is there the whole time. Like, I think it's also not just the father didn't go after him, but because the son, like, knew the father was willing to, like, go ahead and die for him and, like, be considered nothing to him, that that was enough, like, down payment of love for the son to go, maybe I could go back. See, I think it's both and. I think Henry Nouwen even says it better than that. He goes, I'm beginning now to see how radically the character of my spiritual journey will change when I no longer think of God as hiding out and making it as difficult as possible for me to find him, but instead as the one who is looking for me while I am still doing the hiding. I think that's the difference. I think you have to come down to this, like do you actually have a God that goes looking for you? Even if his son didn't have a father who went looking for him, do you have a father that goes looking for you? And to the degree that you can say yes to that is the degree that you'll find yourself wanting to go back home. 
And I love this, verse 24, 22 through 24, it says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. There's a celebration. Uh, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. So we're storing him back to the family. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. And then this line, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Remember earlier we said that, um, that you can have an abandoned life. Um, but here what I find is so interesting. You see, he says he was, he was dead and is alive again. This is only used a couple of times in the New Testament. It's this word, anazeo. You'll recognize zeo from earlier, the word for life, which actually means recover one's life. Think about that. He's, this is literally what it's saying here in the Greek. He recovered his life. He got it back. And here's what this tells us. No matter how far off we go, you can always get it back. No matter where you find yourself today, you can always get it back. That's good news, friends. And that's the promise we have when we now come before the table, is that we have a God who said, I'm actually going to go looking for you. I'm going to do what those first two parables in Luke chapter 15 are talking about, and that is I'm going to leave the 99 and get you. I'm going to search all night and find the coin. And even if the father didn't get out from his own place, go looking for the son, I'm going to find you. I'm going to get you back. Do you have that today? And here's the thing. Recovering your life is a regular process. You recover it for a season. You lose it the next. You get it back the next. You lose it again. It's always this moving towards or away, becoming more or becoming less, the heavenly or hellish creatures we are designed. So where are you? And if you need to get it back, here's what I want to tell you. You're at the right place. And it's not because we have the secret sauce here at Christ City. Trust me, I know we don't. But also know this. We just believe that people deserve to get their lives back. And we're not gonna play codependent games with you as pastors or as leaders. Like, if it's not gonna be here, we'll point you to where it can happen. But what's most important to us is that you get the thing that you are meant to have, and that's the life that is truly life, that soul rest in him. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before your table, we ask that you would remind us through Jesus how we get our, our lives back truly the lives back that we um, feel like we've lost along the way. I don't know where some people's stories are. Maybe they feel they're just fine this morning and they're just happy to hear the message and it confirms everything they're doing, and that's great. But for those of us in this room who go, I have an abandoned life and I am very lonely with God and I don't know what to do with that, then I believe this message and this time is for them and that you would come and meet us now at your table, in your presence, and by your spirit and that we would find that as we leave here today, we would not find that we took a pill, but we were reminded that the way back is the way down and the way down is realizing that we simply have need. And now that we can match that need with a God who is big enough to take care of it, that's what we want to believe today. In Jesus' name, amen.